When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. Welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Will McLeod. And I'm Arliss Bunny. Today, we're going to be mixing it up. Because of the release of the Panama Papers, we wanted to have a long discussion about tax havens and privacy and a lot of other things. And also, we have a really excellent interview with Baltimore mayoral candidate DeRay McKesson. So to start today, I'm going to talk about financing presidential campaigns. PAC spending, not money PACs have raised, but PAC spending as of the 29th of February for conservative PACs has already been $278.2 million. Liberal PACs have spent $25.2 million. That's 278 to 25. The amount raised by Democrats has been 317 million, of which 15% is PAC money. And in this campaign, the GOP has raised 599 9.4 million, of which 52% is PAC money. Again, that's the GOP at 599 million and the Democrats at 317 million. For Democratic candidates, Hillary, as of the end of February, which is the most recent reporting period, she has raised $160.9 million for her campaign directly and $59.4 million for PACs. That's a total of $220.3 million, of which 26% is PAC money. Hillary raised an additional $29.5 million in March. Now, Bernie has raised $139.5 million for his campaign, $2.3 million for PACs, and by the way, notice that I said Bernie has $2.3 million of PAC money. That's a total of $141.9 million, of which only 1% is PAC money. So he's very straight about that. But in terms of money he's raised for his campaign, that's $21.4 million less than Hillary has raised. And in terms of PAC money, that's $57.1 million less than Hillary has raised. Bernie, however, did raise $44 million in March, which broke fundraising records all over the place. It's pretty amazing. But here's the thing. Hillary has raised substantially, substantially more money than Bernie. And if you don't think money wins elections, then as Ms. Lanningham of the West Wing would say, then God, Jed, I don't even want to know you. Let's get real. In 2000, W spent $185 million to get elected. In 2012, Romney and Obama each raised just under $2 billion apiece. And this cycle is expected to get a combined total of, listen to this, $5 billion. That's $5 billion. There is absolutely, unequivocally, categorically no possible way that any candidate of any stripe can run for president without taking PAC money unless they are themselves a billionaire many times over and entirely happy to spend over $2 billion of their own money. Guys, Bernie doesn't have $2 billion. There's no path for Bernie to walk back his stand on financing his campaign unless he just blithely, completely reverses himself and admits to his spectacularly disingenuous stand on the subject. Unilateral disarmament 
is dangerous in this campaign, just as if it was an arms race. Unilateral disarmament is dangerous. If for no other reason than losing the White House to a narcissistic psychopath like Trump or an apocalyptic religious fanatic like Cruz could well lead us into actual nuclear war. Handing the nomination to a candidate who cannot afford to run the necessary election would be irresponsible of the Democratic National Committee. And one other little detail, Bernie has been out busily proving that, at least in the primary election, PAC money and big business can be defeated. So precisely how does that help us in making the opposite argument the next time this issue gets back up to the Supreme Court? Bernie has made Citizens United harder to overturn. Now let's talk about down-ballot races and down-ballot money. Hillary has something called the Hillary Victory Fund, which was formed last August, August 2015. At a meeting of the DNC, she's raised $27 million in 2015. It's structured, this Victory Fund is structured to help both Hillary and other presidential candidates after the primary and the 33 states that signed on to be part of the Victory Fund. States get funds for their state parties, they get expanded research, they get voter registration money, they get data, they get something that's referred to as digital, and they get communication systems. Hillary has raised all the money and it has her name on it, so it's not some sneaky fundraising mechanism, it's not some back door, it's something she's actually worked on actively up front, out in the open, in a very obvious way. But here's the advantage. Here's why the Hillary Victory Fund is valuable for large donors. Instead of writing numerous checks that are each maxing out their possible donation to various aspects of the campaign, they can write a single check. So for instance, without this fund, they would write a $5,400 check to Hillary's campaign. They'd write $33,400 to the DNC. They'd write $10,000 to each of the 33 states and some other miscellaneous things. For the Hillary Victory Fund, they can legally write $368,000 in a single check. If they're a couple, each one of them can do it, and they can do it once in 2015 and once in 2016. So that allows large contributors to give big chunks of money directly without having to go through a lot of hoo-ha about it. And that's party money. So in that way, the Hillary Victory Fund is allowing people to drive money into down-ballot races and forcing money to be shared across down-ballot races in ways it would not otherwise be. In the first quarter, Hillary has raised an additional $15 million for Democrats. Bernie, by the way, has raised zero absolute zero. He said that he's planning to allow his name to be used on letters by the Democratic Senate campaign. Nice. Wow, that's a big help. Hillary's building the Democratic Party. Bernie is leading a revolution, a word he uses three times in his most recent fundraising letter. And a revolution is apparently something you do without any other elected colleagues. And Hillary has something on the order of two million more votes than does Bernie as of this broadcast. After this week, frankly, I don't see Bernie in the same way anymore. And as of this week, I'm officially done with him. I really am. I just don't know how you come back from what Bernie did this week. And it really has shifted how I see him for the foreseeable future. So my new hashtag, my new sort of theme hashtag is feel the dem. I have to agree with Arliss on this. When you as a presidential candidate come out and say that someone else from your party is unqualified or disqualified, that gives the Republicans a talking point that they are going to play forever and a day in ads. That's going to come back again and again and again. 
And that's something Bernie could have avoided. And if someone can't outsmart partisan press, how the hell are they going to be in a position to deal with the GOP or with any of the other people we have to deal with? And it wasn't just that remark. If you read the transcript of his interview in New York with the newspaper, he was unprepared. And it worries me that somebody could be this far into this campaign and make the mistakes he made or have the holes he did in his knowledge. So I'm I'm done with him. Yeah, the statement, that's not something I've studied I'm just, I'm disappointed. But yeah. let's move on here on Hopping Mad. We're back on Hopping Mad, and today I'm talking about tax havens. And of course, I'm doing this because of the recent Panama Papers revelations, but I think it's important to just actually talk about what tax havens are and what they are not. (laughs) Here's something important about tax havens. There's no agreement on the definition. Components of the definition generally include, it's either a nation, a state, or a territory, and it has certain taxes that are either low or nominal, including income taxes, inheritance taxes, and capital gains taxes. Importantly, all tax havens are basically something called a security jurisdiction, and that's key. Security jurisdictions allow for invisibility of ownership and funds, a lack of effective transmission of tax information to foreign tax authorities, and a lack of transparency in legal or administrative provisions. There is no requirement for a substantial local presence in tax havens, and generally tax havens either run on the dollar, the pound sterling, or have a currency that's pegged to the dollar. Finally, the intention to be a tax haven and the promotion, essentially the advertising, the marketing of your country or territory as such is part of being a tax haven. There are kinds of tax havens. There are primary tax havens, semi-tax havens, and conduit tax havens, and they do very different things. A primary tax haven is where the money, where the assets assets end up. A semi-tax haven is jurisdictions where goods are produced for foreign sale and they have inducements like free trade zones. So someplace like Ireland is a semi-tax haven. Conduit tax havens sit between two or more divisions of the same company such that they both appear to have zero profit while the actual profit is funneled into a primary tax haven. So let me describe how conduit tax havens work because there are a lot of them. This is really interesting. So let's say these are all divisions of the same company. Brazil Co., Haven Co., and America Co. Let's say Brazil Co. spends $1,000 U.S. growing and harvesting bananas, which it sells to Haven Co. for $1,000. Notice that there's no profit there. Haven Co. then sells the bananas onto America Co. for $3,000 U.S. And America Co. sells those bananas onto consumers for $3,000 U.S. So again, America Co. is showing zero profit. The profit has happened at Haven Co. And Haven Co. is taking that money and funneling it to wherever the primary tax haven is for co, whoever the company is. Other ways of using conduit tax havens or other specific examples are people like Google who use something that's called the double Irish or the Dutch sandwich technique. And it involves using Ireland as a conduit tax haven, which then pays a division of Google, which is in the Netherlands, for the use of intellectual property and for administration of the use of intellectual property. And by doing that and then funneling their money to Bermuda, where they also have a division, which is where their primary 
tax haven is they're able to bring their tax rate down to 2.4%. So think about what you're paying in taxes. Google's paying 2.4%. Thank you very much. The brand and the algorithms are all registered in the Netherlands. Apple has created something which Senator Carl Levin calls the holy grail of tax avoidance. Apple owns corporations which are legally incorporated in Ireland and in the U.S., but for the purposes of taxes, aren't resident anywhere. (laughs) All of this is legal. It is tax avoidance or tax planning. It is not tax evasion. How amazing is that? Tax havens aren't the only reason small and mid-sized business have been pushed out of the marketplace in many ways, but they are a significant factor. So in many ways, increasing the regulation of tax havens is ultimately good for business, despite what big business would have you believe. So who runs these tax havens? Well, it isn't just that there's a presence of opacity or a lack of regulation that makes some place a tax haven. A tax haven also has to have know-how and talent on board. So the Mossack Francesca lawyers create this know-how in the 42 countries where they have offices. Additionally, these tax havens are, they're essentially run by specialists at large international banks. So the British Virgin Islands and the Caymans and the Bahamas, those are essentially branch offices of the city of London for tax purposes. Caymans, Bermuda, and Jersey are absolutely in the top grouping of tax havens and an enormous amount of money hides there. Firms like Mossack Francesca rarely deal directly with their customers. They usually deal with lawyers, bankers, accountants, or trust company specialists who are representing the end customer. So they may not even, in many cases, know who they are representing. But it's interesting to note that in this day and age, even the IMF and the World Bank have started doing business in tax havens, in particular when they need especially neutral and or stable jurisdictions. Because obviously not all third world, in fact, not all of any world jurisdictions are necessarily stable. So that's how common the use of tax havens has become internationally. So where are these places physically? Where they? Where are they? Where are the top domiciles? Well, Switzerland's number one. That's predictable. Luxembourg, number two. And by the way, Luxembourg happens to be the home of Amazon's European headquarters. Did you know that? Hong Kong, Cayman Islands, which is, of course, owned by the UK, Singapore, the U.S. mainland is number six, and the U.S. is the fastest growing tax haven. Number seven is Lebanon. Number eight is Germany. Number nine is Jersey, again, UK. Number 10 is Japan. Panama is number 11. Bermuda is number 14, and Bermuda specializes in insurance companies, reinsurance companies, pensions, that kind of thing. You drop down to places like Netherlands, which are number 39, and Ireland, which is number 47. And part of what is obvious there is that neither the Netherlands nor Ireland are primary tax havens. They're both either conduit or semi-tax havens, and that's why they're farther down the list. They're very actively used. They're just not primary tax havens. So how much is in tax havens globally? There's no agreement on that. And estimates vary wildly. Everything from $7 trillion to $32 trillion. And estimates for how much in tax revenue was lost as a result of tax havens go as high as $280 billion annually. But of course, 
frankly, that's extremely dependent upon the composition of assets in these tax havens. And we have no way of knowing that. So there's no way to know what kind of tax losses are being sustained. In a study of the 2012 tax year, 60 large U.S. corporations declared that they had 40% of their income offshore. And that's what they were willing to declare. That's not what they had. That's what they're willing to declare. Wealth. When you hear people talk about the wealth in tax havens, you need to think about a number of things because it's not just the obvious things. It includes things like real estate, art, currency, precious metals and gems, treasuries, bearer bonds, but it can also include things like ships. For instance, Liberia used to be the port of registry for most commercial fleets and intellectual property. Free ports, something called a free port, is a repository warehouse for valuables and places like Switzerland, Luxembourg, and Singapore offer those as a standard course and it's part of why they are so popular as primary tax havens. Whatever the real number, tax havens create and allow for a massive hole in the global economy because they sop up resources and those resources don't circulate. And because MMT isn't the law of the land, so to speak, the rest of us, therefore, are paying higher taxes. We are paying for the money that's sitting locked up in the Caymans. Developing countries, though, are particularly hard hit. It's estimated that maybe 4% of the U.S. GDP is locked up in tax havens. Europe, that number is somewhere around, they think, maybe 10%. Latin America, possibly 20%. Africa, possibly 30%. And Russia, possibly as high as 50% of their GDP. There's actually thinking that certain developing nations would no longer be developing if this money was taxed and circulated within their economies. The amount locked up is estimated to be 10 times the size of collective aid packages and twice the size of annual debt service globally. Economists generally think the EU would be out of debt, as would the U.S., if this money was circulating. In many tax haven countries, the holdings of foreign domiciled companies comprise more than 100% of the tax haven's annual economic output. So what happens then is that the emphasis on financialization has an outsized impact on the real domestic production of the nation. That nation isn't pushed to develop other kinds of industry or other ways of generating income because it's relying upon this heavily financialized economy. So let's talk a little bit about shell companies. Shell companies can be set up, particularly here in the U.S., for you, your company, your trust, your rabbit, in just a few minutes, and with no identification verification of any kind. These shell companies don't just happen in places like Panama. The number one place in the world is Delaware. And right behind, on Delaware's heels, Wyoming, Nevada, Florida, Texas, but frankly, any state in the nation, you can form a shell company. How do you identify a shell company? S-corporations and LLCs can be shell companies because they don't necessarily have to disclose their beneficiary. In 2009, I guess, the tax loophole around S-corps was closed. So S-corps are fully taxable in the United States, but it is difficult to drill down into them and see who owns them. So here's how it can work. Let's say you set up an offshore shell company and transfer ownership of your various assets to that company. The shares of that company go into a trust, and as the trustee, you have the use of them till you die. Upon your death, your shares automatically vest in your child, who now has the assets and effective ownership of it without having to pay inheritance taxes. So that's why this is 
thought of as inheritance planning or tax planning instead of, that's how people justify thinking about it, I think is the best way to say that. Tax havens and shell companies begin to be useful in the U.S. if you have an income of between three and five million dollars in assets. Okay, so the next thing is there's something called tax competition. And basically that's a form of jurisdiction shopping. So you choose where you're going to domicile your assets based upon the tax law in that area. And in fact, when I moved my company, one of the things I did was look at the various property taxes in the different states I was considering. And I ruled out states that had abnormally high property taxes and chose one that had lower property taxes. That is tax jurisdiction shopping in tax havens that's done on a bigger scale and opaquely. Tax havens have developed specialties also, just as a matter of course. So for instance, the Caymans specialize in hedge funds and banking, and Bermuda specializes in insurance. Not all uses of tax havens are illegal. And in fact, there are lots of legal reasons and legal ways to use a tax haven. So I'm going to list some. You live or have a business in an unstable part of the world and you pay your taxes, but you feel it's safer if your assets are kept somewhere else where they're not at risk of being stolen. You are at risk of assassination and you don't want people to know where you live. And part of the way you disguise that is by hiding all your assets in a shell company, in a tax haven. You are in the management of a large financial institution. You don't want your coworkers to know what you're making or what bonus you receive. So it's just a privacy issue in that way. Or let's say you're in a company doing business with other international companies and there are all kinds of international laws and various complexities that come to play there. So you do your business, you do your deal in a neutral third jurisdiction so that the transaction is safer for all concerned and so that it prevents double taxation. You pay your taxes on the deal one time. You don't pay it in three different places. And if I could jump in here. Yeah. This is one of the places where free trade agreements have a tiny bit of merit. Yes. Because in a lot of ways, they sweep things away. And I think our problem with free trade agreements shouldn't be their existence, because obviously the European free trade zone is a good thing for everyone involved. The Eurozone is a bad thing. I think the problem, uh, as we and others have talked about in the past with TTIP and the TTP and all these other trade agreements, is the lack of transparency, number one. And number two, the way that it overrides some very important fights that we have been having in our various countries, especially about intellectual property. The EFF has highlighted the real problems where it goes after people for storing their content in the systems they want, where it, it interrupts our ability to communicate with each other, where it keeps corporations that are on their last legs alive when they are regressive institutions such as the music label industry. We've seen the horror about how those corporations treat their people with the way that Kesha has been treated after making allegations of rape against her uh, producer and then basically forced to work with him because of the power that those industries have. And these agreements tend to give those corporations more power. So I think going forward, we should focus on the aspects of trade agreements and international law that can get rid of these problems while also removing from those trade agreements the damaging things that are in them. So this is one of the places where trade agreements can fix problems. It's just that for some reason... There are poison pills loaded into them. Yeah. 
trade agreements get loaded up with all of this regressive stuff in addition to the stuff that gets rid of these sorts of tax haven possibilities. Yeah, yeah. So sort of the last big area where there's really a lot of valid use for tax havens is that an enormous percentage of the business then with China goes through tax havens because legal options are Western and considered safer. It's possible to issue different classes of shares. Financial laws are established and stable. And the political environment, frankly, is more amenable to capitalism. So let's get to the bottom line here. Let's start talking about regulation. The Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development in the Eurozone has established some guidelines. And since 2013, British Prime Minister David Cameron has really been pushing something called the Register of Beneficial Ownership. He pushed it really hard at the G8 in 2013, and he's pushed it solidly since and really forced it on the UK territories. And the objective is to have a registry which divulges who owns every company and thereby eliminates the shell in shell company. And leading charities like Oxfam and Action Aid support beneficial ownership registries as a line of defense against wealth being drained out of developing nations and diverted from aid packages. As of June 2016, companies based in the UK will be required to be on the register. And it should be said that 100 countries have joined the OECD guidelines and the US is the only nation to explicitly refuse. Thank you very much. We have something called the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, FECTA, signed by Obama in 2010. And what that requires is reporting to the IRS of all foreign accounts held by Americans or US-based corporations in banks, brokerages, hedge funds, etc. And there are fines for failure to file. But the problem is, of course, that there's no there's no way to enforce those. If the information isn't volunteered, how do you get to it? Because tax havens are opaque. And there's also been problems with the fact that where people living overseas, some of whom aren't U.S. citizens but were born in the United States, have been denied access to local banks who are terrified yes. of coming to follow the rules. You have American citizens who are giving up their citizenship because they need to be able to buy groceries and cash their paychecks. Right. So it would be much better for us in this circumstance to work with the Europeans yes, on... But- that would require Congress's cooperation. And so here's part of the problem with that. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the Panama Papers for just one second. The Panama Papers have proven that the use of tax havens, despite increased regulation, is skyrocketing. And, you know, we know that tax havens are a major factor in rising inequality because it's locking all that money out of the world's economy. But in addition, there's absolutely evidence because of the Panama Papers that culture matters. The rise of anti-tax movements have made tax havens more acceptable. And the rise of anti-tax tax movements have made increasing the regulation and regulation enforcement of tax havens much more difficult. Thank you, U.S. Congress. Due to really excellent secrecy provisions and protections provided by the U.S. for shell companies, the Panama Papers are likely to push more business into the U.S. and more shell companies into the U.S. as they have to flee out of, for instance, British jurisdiction where they're being required to divulge their registries. And I must say, in all fairness, this is a train Bernie Sanders foresaw and predicted in 2011 when he pushed for greater regulation. So he has been on board this for a long time. Let me get down to my last thing here. And I want to give a hat tip to David Allen Green's piece in the Financial Times and Kadim Schuber's piece at FT Alphaville, which is also the Financial Times. There's a tweet. One of them quoted a tweet by Dr. Tyler Cowen. Are your views on privacy in the Panama Papers consistent? Just asking. 
So, folks, think about your opinion of the current battle between Apple and the FBI, or the war that WhatsApp's been fighting to protect its users' encrypted messages. And think about your opinion on the privacy following the Snowden revelations. Now think about your position on the Panama Papers. How's privacy looking to you now? On the left, there seems to be, there appears to be, a cognitive dissonance running rampant between those who are calling for total data privacy and secrecy, while at the same time praising data leaks. So the question is, is privacy a fundamental right or a situational right? If it's a fundamental right, then isn't it just as fundamental a right for black hats as for white hats? And if it's a situational right, then who decides? And beyond that, all developed nations agree that there's a fundamental right to attorney-client privilege and that the privilege belongs to the client, not the firm. Mossack Fonseca is operating as a firm of lawyers representing their clients. And just as an aside, whistleblowers and journalists, a free press, are all dependent on the fundamental right of attorney-client privilege. Ramon Francesca made the argument that an offshore shell company is little different than encryption for financial affairs and that bad things a client can do with a shell company are no more the fault of the law firm than are things users can do with an iPhone the fault of Apple. We know that rights are never absolute, that there are bars of varying heights set for impinging upon them. And I think that's the thing to keep in mind. Also, you know what, folks? All privacy is not equal. Your personal email isn't the same as the email you write at work, which isn't the same as emails sent between secure servers protected by the Official Secrets Act. And in closing, and Will and I might still chat for a minute, but in closing, Kadim Schuber has this to say. All of this is a long-winded way of saying that if people judged all rights to have equal value, then there might be some use in suggesting that there's something wrong with taking different positions on differing issues of privacy. But almost nobody does view rights as equal to each other. Observing the benefits of strong encryption for phones and messaging apps, as well as the harms of secret offshore shell companies, is consequentialism rather than hypocrisy. Close quote. I think he's right on that point. But I think that when we talk about rights, there are two things that we need to focus on. Who has them? And I think we have this whole idea of corporations or people, which is a problem because corporations do not die and cannot be sent to prison and cannot be executed for capital crimes. That's the thing you don't have. If a corporation kills a bunch of people, it doesn't have to worry about being forced into non-existence through some kind of corporate death penalty, like a person would if they killed 30 people. That's Or if they participate in terrorism, they don't have to worry about treason and then not existing like a person would. So when we talk about about rights, I think, number one, you're right. There is no such thing as absolute rights. The, the good example about freedom of speech is that you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. And also, you don't have protection to say whatever the heck you want on someone's blog comment section. Because freedom of speech is not your right to be heard or your right to an audience. It's your right to protection from the government restricting your expression. If a community online or any other community wants you to leave the room, then you're just being shown the door, not having your rights impinged. No shoes, no shirt, no service. Yeah, that sort of thing. If you're going to be a jerk, people aren't going to want to hear what you have to say. And that's their right not to hear you. They have a right to leave or ask you to leave if they're the proprietor. So I'm moving on from that. I, I think when it comes to the question of privacy specifically, we should apply that standard of fire in a crowded theater. And I think we should say that individual rights are absolute. Corporate rights are where we start asking certain questions. 
I think people do have a right to expect privacy on their phone lines unless someone has gotten a warrant. And I sent a letter to my senator who was Jim Webb a long time ago where he responded that he agreed with me that if we create a scenario where Americans are afraid that they're being watched, then cryptography will become a consumer product. And we've seen that it has. You have Americans investing in cryptographic solutions, which now make it much harder for law enforcement to get warrants and go after the actual bad guys. What we need between people and government over the question of privacy is for the Fourth Amendment to be respected. We need to be able to feel secure in our papers and effects, which include our electronic effects, our data. Absolutely. We need the Fourth Amendment to apply. If that happens, then questions of cryptography become immaterial because the government has been legally prevented once again from violating our rights. And I think if that's the situation we're in, then that's exactly where we need to be. But that's where we have to get to when it comes to questions of personal privacy. Yeah, I agree. Next up on Hopping Mad, we have an incredible interview with DeRay McKesson. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with you. Welcome back to Hopping Mad. We are here with an interview with DeRay McKesson, who's running for mayor of Baltimore and has one of the best policy proposal packages I have ever seen in a municipal election. DeRay, it's great to have you on. Oh, it's so good to be here. <laughs> one of the things that I've, I've really noticed about your policy is when people hear Black Lives Matter, they often think policing. But you have a policy platform that examines every aspect of life in a city like Baltimore, from education to health to arts. 
Uh, if there is something you could do in your first hundred days, the most important piece of your platform, and you could get it through no matter what the opposition, what would that be? I don't think there's a most important piece, right? I think that all of the things are important. When we look at the platform, I actually anticipated this question, which is why it's really clear across the eight priority areas what the 100-day focus is for all of the areas so that you can see. Um, when I think about the first decisions I'd make, it would likely be who I hire, so who the chief of staff or deputy mayor would be to help keep the trains running on time, who the health commissioner would be. I think that public health is about way more than hospitals, and then uh, who the police chief is. And those would be the first three, uh, first three hires. But in terms of things to push through, uh, you know, the platform is focused on two core tenets. One is strategy. How do we connect resources so that we can maximize impact? And the second is about scale. So in Baltimore, we have uh, our problems are at scale. The solutions have not been. Uh, and that is that is strewn through every piece of policy that I'm proposing in the platform. One of the main focuses you have, and this is indicative of something that one of our guests, Lenny Schroeder, said before. He said the most dangerous thing you have in any society to the health of a society, and that includes uh, Western societies like ours, but it also includes Middle Eastern societies, is young people without hope and without prosperity. And you focus on the health, the physical health of students before they even enter school, which is something I find very interesting. When it comes to sort of, and we know from from talking to educational experts that if people aren't getting the nutrition they need, they're not going to be able to focus for education. So talking about those health policies when it comes to education and, and healthy children and babies, what are the sorts of things you envision changing? Yeah, so when I think about the health platform, I'm sensitive to, to understanding and noting that uh, we have to start thinking about health beyond hospitals. Mm-hmm. That the health of our communities is about so much more than your primary care physician. That is a part of it. But we know that health is about what you do every day. It's about where you go. It's about what you eat. It's about uh, who you sleep with. Like, these are part of the health conversations, and we, and we need to bring them into the public space. In terms of concrete things, you know, I'm calling for a home visit strategy to address all of our uh, every kid in the birth cohort. So we have birth cohorts around 7,000 kids. We can actually do home visits to make sure that parents are equipped to be parents uh, from conception and birth, but also we can give kids their first libraries. You know, you think about Baltimore mm-hmm. City, where 40% of the adults are functionally literate. Wow. Uh, you think about our earliest learners. Uh, we know that the, the biggest predictor of a kid's reading ability is their mother's, and importantly, it's not fixed. We also know that the only way to become a good reader is to read, and the only way to read is to have books. So we can actually give every kid in the city, like, their first library. Like, we could actually do that in a way that hasn't been done before. And in Baltimore, you know, that work is happening at a very small scale, 50, 100 kids. We could scale it up to, to touch the whole birth cohort. So that's one concrete thing. Uh, in terms of public health, I'm calling for uh, more attention in a, a citywide strategy around dealing with HIV and, and AIDS and co-infection in the city. Um, I think that there, you know, our needle exchange program has actually led to a reduction in, in infection and co-infection, which is really powerful. I think injection sites could be another key strategy here. You know, inject, the research around injection sites is fascinating because what it suggests is that uh, people actually, um, the re- injection sites actually serve as a pathway to treatment for people because there's a touch because people actually know who the users are. And over time, it becomes a pathway to treatment. And that's really interesting in a city with 70,000 people addicted to substances, which is Baltimore, um, that we have to think about our solutions differently. Mm. To talk about that a little bit more, there is a home visiting program, but not one that's uh, significant enough to touch a whole birth cohort. Yeah, they're like home, they're people who do home visits, like across the city, they mm-hmm. do it. Uh, it's not at scale, right? So it's like a couple hundred people. 
Um, but we could actually scale it. DC is interesting. DC scaled it, right? DC teaches yeah. about 10,000 kids. Well, my wife actually works in a home visiting program, so I know oh, perfect. A, a lot from her. And you're right, so right to raise when you're talking specifically about birth cohorts, because when people think about doing home visiting for every kid in Baltimore, they're thinking of massive numbers. But we're only really talking about 7,000 kids born in a certain period of months where they'll get that sort of early child thing. So it's very affordable for a city like Baltimore, which is one of the things that most people don't talk about. So I really congratulate you for focusing us on exactly what numbers we're talking about because that's so important. Yeah. And you save money, you know, it's like, it is both cost effective and, you know, we won't have to invest on the back end in Mm -hmm. remedial teaching of reading because we'll we'll address it on the front end. And we really have a three pronged issue when it comes to education. Not only, you know, even if you K to 12, at least is a structured to, manage that even if it's not like a fully functioning structure our adults there is no structure so you know baltimore the the two-year the graduation rate for two-year degrees at the community college is two percent the graduation rate uh, at the community college for four-year degrees is 2.5 percent right so if that's the structure to manage adults that's failing and then gd the gd pass rate in the city is abysmally low you know it's like Thousands of people take it, a few hundred pass. I'm calling for a diploma granting program for adults in the city mm-hmm. so that we can actually have a strategy to make sure adults get the skills and get the diploma. You know, 60% of the jobs in the city require a diploma. But the challenge here is that it's the high, we have the highest graduation rate that we've had in decades, right? In 96, when the school system split uh, from the city itself, it was at 43%, and now it's at 70 It's still the lowest in the state, but the fastest growing. The challenge, though, is that our kids graduate with diplomas, and then when they go to the community college, they have to take two years of remedial classes, right? So mm. it's better that you have a degree than not, a diploma than not, because if you don't have one, it's going to be incredibly hard for you to get employed. But the diploma actually is meaning very little in terms of the skills that, that it assumes that you also have. So you're going to need to increase, then, K-12 to education to bring students up to the level that they won't need to take remedial classes, uh, that's that sounds like a pretty daunting task. What's your, what's your what's your plan to handle that? Yeah, so the mayor currently doesn't control schools, and, and I'm sensitive to to also knowing that mayoral control in and of itself is not a solution. Mm-hmm. Right? That there's some cities with mayoral control that do well, some cities that don't do well. Um, so I, I I wouldn't like to say you know what I'll do managing schools because I can't. But what we right. can do is invest in. Uh, we can align the resources that currently exist and invest in new resources to address literacy head on, for instance. Like okay. we know we know our kids in school who like aren't at reading level and we could actually have a comprehensive strategy over the summer to bring them up to reading level. Uh, would it be hard? Yes. Has it been done at scale like this before? No. Uh, is it possible? Totally. And it would require, though, for the first time that the city say, like, here's our priority and here's how we're going to marshal the philanthropic community the teaching community, like all of these communities together uh, to address this problem and have clear outcomes and goals. I think that it is easy sometimes uh, for people to just say, oh, you know, our kids aren't reading a grade level. We're going to work really hard and work really hard actually doesn't get us to an outcome that makes sense. Uh, It is about having like a concrete plan and a strategy at the Mm -hmm. city level that isn't that isn't just resting on people's goodwill, but is actually focused. Well, as a an employer. I own a manufacturing company. Quite honestly, I need, absolutely need reading skills and I absolutely need basic math skills, but I don't need students to know the capital of North Dakota. I do, on the other hand, need 
my employees to have a basic understanding of how the world works. In other words, like I need them to understand, to have a basic sense of, of history, not because I need them to be able to recite it, but because having depth and understanding and a foundation affects how you operate in the world. It affects how you see the world. So I don't know how we change testing and how we change the way we evaluate students from being based on facts that mean nothing to being based on foundations that mean everything. But I, I do know as an employer that it would make an enormous difference if we could get there. Yeah, and I think that's the work that, I think that that was the intent of Common Core was yeah. how do we make sure that the curriculum is more uh, focused on having students go through processes and understand the processes uh, more exposed to a range of skills and content areas. I think that for some teachers it veered too far, right? That like the alter the alternative was very skilled, like very skill based, right? So it was like you learn two step equations, whereas Common Core is much more expansive. Um, and I do think there's there's likely a happy medium there that meets everybody's needs and makes sure our kids are, are really strong learners. I also think that the way we get to the the world that you envision is by being really thoughtful about what happens in our out of school time, right? That like some of this is making sure our kids are, have broad exposure to experiences. Um, yeah. And we can actually be really intentional. You know, Baltimore pioneered, Baltimore has a really strong after school, out of school network here, of providers, mm-hmm. really strong. Uh, and and they do incredible work uh, amongst themselves. They aren't necessarily supported at the city level in any in any intentional way. And we could, we could change that. I would even offer that there are so many people with skills. You think about yourself, right? Like you, you have a podcast and that you would be willing to lead an after school program one day a week and teach a set of kids, like 10, 15 kids, but you might not know how to reach kids. Like you don't know how to get kids in your program, but you would totally do it if somebody helped link it, link students to you. And we can actually close that gap. I think about so many industries in the city around photography, coding, uh, people with a lot of talent who want to work with kids, but don't have a standing relationship with the school or a set of kids and after school program. And we can actually bridge that gap so that kids get the exposure that they deserve. That's a fantastic idea. My, you know, there's this rise in something called the maker movement you know, people who actually make things with their hands. And my husband basically comes out of that movement. He started making things on a corner of his garage. And now we um, are, you know, now we have flock of employees and make them and ship them all around the world. And every time we talk to young people, they're shocked that it is possible to go from making something, I mean, without being in electronics, without being in tech, without being in something that's flashy, that it's possible to go from making something simple in in the corner of your garage to, or, you know, the corner of your dining room or wherever it is you are, to having a worldwide impact. And the internet and that kind of thing makes things like that possible in a way that it simply wasn't before. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's, and it's remarkable when you see that change and, to be able to get that word out, to be able to say to kids, hey, you can, you can do this. You don't have to watch it done. You don't have to work for somebody else to do this. You can do this. Yeah. And then the question becomes like, how do we create access for kids, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, one of the things that's been really interesting being a candidate is that uh, people, uh, that what candidates often do is that they just repeat the problem, right? Like instead of offering a solution, they just like repackage the problem, which mm-hmm. is really frustrating. The second is that some of the solutions are actually 
pretty basic, right? They are not necessarily sexy, uh, but they are what the work is. So we think about what it would mean to create a database or to create a matching system for people with, for adults with talent and skills that want to share them with kids, right? We could do that. It is not, you know, it doesn't necessarily have like a cool name right now. It doesn't cost $80 million, but like the impact would be real. And when I think about running, when I think about being mayor, it is about how do we actually change the outcomes? Because in Baltimore, what happened in the 90s is that every program that you could think of that had to deal with urban America came here. Everybody's after school program, every initiative and community. And what we, what we saw was a lot of money and the outcomes didn't change. And we can't afford that again. That this has to be about how we change outcomes. Mm-hmm. We had Lawrence Brown on, and uh, who, Dr. Lawrence Brown from Baltimore, who uh, gave us the most amazing interview. Uh, talked about a number of the programs and about what's going on in a variety of super segregated, super segregated cities across the nation, in a way that I had not heard anybody speak about it in like 20 years and having resources like that available in your community, having Morgan state in your community, does that make it easier for you to uh, find support for looking for outcome based solutions? Mm. Yeah, there are a lot of resources in the city. So yes, in terms of support, the hard part is that um, it is easy to believe that the problem is intractable because it has been compounded for so long. Yeah. And I think that we are all in some ways susceptible to that. And I worry sometimes that people have just said, okay, this is as good as it can get. Um, I also am really, uh, you know, my push is around scale. That you think about a city with 70,000 addicts, that you open up one treatment center, that's going to be amazing for the 30 people it touches, but that actually isn't going to put a dent in the problem. So when I think about the partner institutions, it it always, for me, is a question of how do we continue to push people to think about maximizing impact? And that requires all of the the anchor institutions. I mean, it's something wild, though. You think about the tax base in the city, it's about 40% of of the property in the city is not uh, taxable. Like, it's nonprofits and and places that don't pay tax, which is interesting. Uh, And they have a huge sway what happens in the city you know i often say that in baltimore it's not a lack of will it's not a lack of talent it's not a lack of skill it is definitely a lack of a plan and in the absence of a plan what you see is people working in their silos and doing things that they that are definitely right uh they just aren't being maximized right that we could Mm -hmm. actually like make sure more people's lives are touched without uh, lowering the quality and that can be a real focus. Can you yeah. give us an example of that? Oh, so many examples. Addiction's one, <laughs> right? That if we actually invested in, if we invested in, in a strategy to address addiction that was about inpatient treatment, about 30-day programs that uh, that transitioned away from methadone clinics, transitioned to uh, 24-7 on-demand treatment, that also had our officers equipped with, more officers equipped with the overdose inhibitor and naloxone and mental health providers. Like that would actually be a strategy and we get everybody to the table and say, here's how we address these specific communities, right? That would actually be like a, a citywide strategy that didn't just rely on the health department, but brought uh, the school system together, that brought rec and parks together, transportation, right? Like that would be a strategy. I think about vacant homes. You know, we know that in Baltimore, uh, people do not move into neighborhoods with over 4% vacant and abandoned homes. And the proximity to and from 4% actually changes the tools that we use in the toolkit to manage the problem neighborhood by neighborhood. So, okay, so, so we could actually develop neighborhood strategies. So in along those lines, to me, that sounds like something that ought to be 
and I know, I, I so know the answer to this, but you may have a completely different answer, which is why I'm going to ask. To me, that sounds like something that ought to be saleable to conservatives because you can say, and it's cheaper. It's a lot cheaper. Prevention is always basically more expensive than remediation. And um, in this particular case, with this particular program, it also affects crime. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think it is amenable to conservatives. I think that uh, what I've also learned sort of upfront and personal in the, in this race is that candidates actually know very, very little about policy. So I think people's expectations, um, people's ideas is actually really low uh, because it's it's they've never had a reason to think anything else. Uh, so yeah, I think that these ideas are translatable to all uh, to all communities. It is better for everybody that there are fewer vacant and abandoned homes. Like that's just better, right? It makes people feel safer. It changes the way we think about community. Um, I think that. When I think about proposing a neighborhood by neighborhood strategy, the reason mayors have not done that before is that that requires like a political prioritization. And that doesn't work if you want to be mayor for 80 years, right? Because in one neighborhood, it's like, well, you care about them more than me, which isn't true, but it is about like, how do we align resources? Well, and I think that's an appropriate question to ask. Uh, you have a really, really uh, um important chart in your policy package that shows the median household income and breakdown by certain neighborhoods. Baltimore City, 41,000 medium income. Greater Roland Park or Poplar Hill, 106,000 medium income. But Old Town and Middle East, 13,000. That's that's well below the poverty level. And that's the median income, which means there are a ton of families making way less than that. So when you have a situation of that kind of grinding poverty, you do need to prioritize your resources to lift that community out. Because one of the things that we do here in D.C. that I find particularly frustrating is we have that kind of grounding pro- grinding poverty in Southeast. And we want to pretend that Southeast will just stay in Southeast and all the problems of Southeast will stay in Southeast. So those of us who live elsewhere don't have to deal with it. But that's not true. And I'm so how do you when you're talking about prioritizing neighborhoods, what are the things that you want to do to make sure that we do the kind of, of economic growth we do and create the kind of economic opportunity we do? Because that won't just be good for the people there. It also makes uh, services less expensive. It also means that you have greater opportunity to do more for the city as people's incomes rise and the tax revenue increases as well. How do you prioritize that? Yeah, I think that... I'm... <laughs> I think part of it is being really clear about what the priorities are, saying that we believe that we should develop not just around the harbor, but in communities that we know in Baltimore, we have what's called the 21st century plan. So every single school in the portfolio will be renovated over the next 10 years and that development will be coming to neighborhoods that have never seen development before, like in the last 50 years, and that we can actually bundle those opportunities. And we think about the home strategy. It is about saying, you know, I think about the proximity to and from the 4%. It is about saying that we're going to do in phase one, it's going to be a set of neighborhoods with over 30% and then a set of neighborhoods in between six and 10. And that we're going to be really thoughtful about how we implement the tools, whether it's enforcing the inclusionary housing law, the vacants to value program, the dollar home program, housing vouchers, right? That like that the strategy has to be responsive to the culture of neighborhoods if it's actually going to be, uh, if it's going to be, if it's going to have a real impact. And then I think what you said is true is that some of this is about telling the right story, right? Like helping people understand that like less vacant homes means more people moving into neighborhoods, which is better for everybody. Increases the tax base, increases the revenue, increases uh, people's sense of safety, right? Like all of those things are real. I also think 
uh, you know, I talk often about what it, how do kids experience joy in the city. There are three movie theaters here, for instance, none of them around any neighborhood that has any modicum of poverty. Uh, so what do kids mm-hmm. do? They leave the city to go have fun, right? And like that, that like uh, makes some of our problems cyclical as well. Mm-hmm. So real quickly here at, at the end of this portion of the interview, how do you make progress on your platform no matter what, win, lose, or draw in the election? <laughs> Oh, you know, I've talked to so many groups in Baltimore, and what I'd like to continue to do uh, as a mayor, if not mayor, is to is to help people think about policy differently and think about what the solutions are differently. I do think what the platform does really well uh, is that it it makes relatively complex ideas really accessible to people, uh, and then shows people that they're possible. Right? So you think about ending cash bail, people are like, "Oh my gosh, that's so crazy!" And then you're like, "DC did it 20 years ago." You think about match savings accounts like San Francisco has pioneered that work. Uh, so these ideas don't seem pie in the sky. They actually seem grounded in reality for people. And that has already been really powerful here. Hmm. That's great. Well, folks, you've been listening to our interview with Jeray McKesson. Please check us out at our website, imhoppingmad.com or on iTunes to listen to the extended interview. Kegro in the Morning is next here on Netroots Radio. Here with DeRay McKesson. DeRay, one of the things that is, uh, you know, th- that I guess could be a bit frustrating. I know it's frustrating for me is as I've been watching the race and the polling, one of the things you said is that a lot of the candidates don't seem to know about policy. And you, from everything I know, and definitely from this con- conversation, seem to be the smartest guy in the room. Yet that policy knowledge and having the answers to these questions doesn't seem to be translating in the way that we would like it to be. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I don't think that 
you know, so from the day that I announced it was 83 days, it was 83 can- day campaign, no matter what. And uh, I knew that this work would be about getting in front of as many voters as possible. And when we think of the polls, uh, uh, the polls are 75% people above the age of 50, only 6% people below the age of 35. Hmm. Why that matters in this election is that uh, this is the first time the mayoral election and the presidential primary will fall on the same day. So we anticipate that the electorate will just be different. It'll be different in ways that none of our statistical models can actually pre- uh, predict because it's just never happened. So the mayor's race for the first time will be down ballot, down ballot in a way that it just has not happened before. So the polls tell a story. They don't tell the story of the city. Um, and I think about knocking on so many doors, even to people who have signs in their lawns who are seemingly committed, that they actually are undecided. So there's still a lot of room left. The danger in the polls is that they become confirmatory for people, Mm. uh, even though it is heavily skewed towards a demographic that is not natural. You know, it is people who don't have, who aren't on, you know, any social media, who aren't engaged in this way. And not that they don't matter. They do matter. They are not necessarily my most natural demographic. So my people, and when I say my people, I mean, you know, 50 plus year old white women, we vote. We always show up and vote. We vote if the election is for dog catcher. What do you want us to shut up and hear from you? Mm, no, you know, we've done a, I've done a ton of house, uh, house meet and greets that people put together and uh, knocked on so many doors and had so many conversations in community. I think it is, you know, understanding that that this election is about the difference between politics as usual and the politics of change. And I'm the only candidate that's not beholden to the establishment that has uh, the freedom to do what's right and not have to owe, you know, a developer or anybody else. I think about our fundraising model is that we have 5,100 donations uh, from all 50 states. And importantly, the third highest number of donors from Baltimore city, that there's a commitment here and a commitment around the country to my leadership in the race. So, and this race is important because it can usher in a new era of accountability and transparency in city government. So uh, I think the the platform is by far the strongest. I think it paints a clear picture of what, what is possible and both what is uh, practical in the city in terms of actually changing outcomes. And to talk about changing outcomes, uh, to shift to your reform package again, um, you know, you talked about match savings account and that's been done in um san francisco you talked about uh in previous uh statements you've talked about getting rid of the the sort of predatory uh check cashing uh situation where people are unbanked and are are preyed upon by by predatory institutions that are trying to take a portion of their paycheck just that they can get paid um when you talk about these sorts of developments when you talk about creating economic opportunity. How do you create economic opportunity without creating the kind of gentrification that we see in other cities that tends to clear out the people who've been there forever and push them into, you know, impoverished suburbs outside of the city? You know, I think that interesting question is that some of this is about making sure uh, that there are that people are skilled to, to take the jobs. So in Baltimore, you think about the sheer number of construction opportunity uh, or other jobs that require you to be able to read or require high school diploma. And like, you know, we are automatic, people are automatically disqualified if that's not the case. Uh, the second is around transportation. I just talked to a small business owner the other day. who's like, I want to hire people in the city, but if they need to catch the bus, it is like impossible for them to come to our construction jobs. Like they just can't like, if the construction job is not 
directly in the city limits and it's anywhere else that the the commute time they have to take is prohibitive right Hmm. so when i think about the access to jobs it is not necessarily a sheer matter of attracting jobs to the city the jobs are here in some ways and what the city has done for so long is actually employ the region and not the city so people from across the region come work in the city at our jobs our own residents don't and that is about training it's about addressing the transportation issues you know the mayor has no uh, control over MTA, which is the public transportation system that mm-hmm. is disproportionately used here in the city. So I'm calling for joint management of that. Um, and then it is about having real local hiring commitments in, the, in our contracts. Hmm. So as mayor, well, one of the one of the things you're highlighting again and again and again is that the mayor does not have direct control over things that a lot of other mayors uh, have direct control over. And transportation is another one. Uh, your policy talks about working as an advocate along with uh, uh, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and other groups who are trying to get the red line reconstructed to help with those uh, those commute times. Um, in what in what ways do you think that advocacy is the best way to to help achieve change? And in, in what ways do you think maybe it's time for certain things to return to mayoral control? Uh, so th- that advocacy is an outlier, right? It is about. Uh, we need an east-west connector. It, it doesn't make sense that the red line was taken off the table the way it does. I support the NAACP Legal Defense Fund's uh, lawsuit against the state. What's really unfortunate about this lawsuit particularly is that even if we win, it's not clear that we'll get back the billion dollars in federal funding that came along with it. In terms okay. of the other things, there are four institutions that the mayor does not manage now that the mayor will need to have a different relationship with if we're ever to develop a holistic strategy for the city. So that is buses, jail. Uh, the community college and the school system, uh, that they are so in- integral to the way the city functions that to not manage them really is a big loss. So we think, oh, we know that in Baltimore, someone who has more than a 45-minute commute, two things happen. One is that they're uh, a 45-minute commute to work. Uh, two things happen. One is their happiness decreases and their reliability decreases. Mm-hmm. When their happiness decreases, they you know move out of the neighborhood. That's bad for the neighborhood because an employee person is gone. And then their reliability decreases, uh, they, you know, lose their job, right? Uh, and it's hard because as mayor, I know that's true. And we can definitely commit to, you know, using the new zoning around transit-oriented development and, and things like that to develop differently. But I couldn't actually change the bus route, even if I knew the right change. I'd have to lobby the state to do it. And that doesn't make sense. Uh, and I think about that with, like, the community college. I think about that with the school system. I think about that with jails. Hang on just one second. Did you just say the bus routes are set by the state in Baltimore? Yeah, so it's the Maryland Transit Authority. Is the, manages all, like, bus, the buses, the light rail. There's the city circulator, which is, like, a, which is a free uh, sort of bus that goes in one part of the city. And the, and the city has much more control over that, but... That's not like the bus route. It's not what our kids are taking to school every day. It's not what our citizens are taking to work every day. Uh, mm-hmm. And we have no direct control or, or real influence. And if uh, I forget sometimes that being a, a D.C. resident, I'm aware of these things. Would you explain to our listeners the situation with the red line so that those who don't have that background can understand the real problem there? Yeah, so there's no there's currently no connector from the east side to the west side. No real connector. Uh, and the red line was going to be that connector so that people could travel across the city for work or for play or for to go to the doctors or whatever uh, in a way that didn't require you sort of going to the heart of the city or like a, a big bus terminal and then being rerouted you could actually just cut across and that was taken off the table by the new governor uh, and the money was diverted to other things and 
the loss there was not only the state money that was diverted, but it was going to come with a billion dollars in federal funding to really make it work, and, and that was lost too. So they're being sued by the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, um, and that lawsuit might be productive. I support the lawsuit. And the situation with that, to elaborate just a bit further, um, that would have allowed a lot of poor folks to be able to have access to work that otherwise have those massive commutes that you were talking about. Is that correct? Yeah, not just poor. It would have allowed people to travel uh, more efficiently, regardless of income. It would have allowed people to go back and forth across the city in ways that, uh, you know, they, it's just really hard now. Like, who wants to take an hour and a half, uh, you know, bus trip to go to the mall? Nobody. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So one of the one of the sort of buzzwords we talk about when we talk about politics and policy is sustainability. You're talking about a lot of a lot of changes that you would like to see. How do you make sure that these happen in a way that is ultimately sustainable? Yeah, so my work has been focused on systems for so long. You know, I, I used to teach and and worked in uh, work in education. I managed the training of teachers, and and then most recently, I was a number two in human resources, human capital in Baltimore City Public Schools and in Minneapolis Public Schools, and um, and you know, in those positions, it was it was mostly about how do we make this long lasting, how do we fundamentally change systems and structures. Uh, so I know that work well. I know that it is as much about the right people in the right places as it is about making sure the policies and the rules and the procedures all work towards a common goal. And also being really clear about like how do we measure and what's the outcome. Uh, that this is not just about doing things to make you feel good. It is about doing things that actually have an impact. So you think about in Baltimore in the 90s, you know, we put doctors on buses and da 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 in neighborhoods, and like it actually didn't change the health disparities. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like that is not akin to healthcare, and I know those things. Uh, so I'm guarded against having a programmatic approach uh, to making change, and, and I'm much more in favor of a systemic approach. So you were you created a, a program out of St. Louis called Mapping Police Violence, and which I believe actually was an award-winning program. But that so it created a great deal of data, as I understand it. But what else did it do? What else did it bring to the table that, that um, made it possible to look for holistic solutions and look for the right people and make change based on that kind of data? Yep. So, you know, we launched, I'm in a team of people who launched Mapping Police Violence with me, Sam, Brittany, and Netta. And when we launched it, you know, it, it was the first time that the information around police violence, uh, the public information had been merged. So killedbypolice.net was a pioneer in this work. And then the Fatal Encounters database are the foundations. Both of them are the foundations for any number that people use around police violence. Um, and we were the first people to combine them and to use them to disaggregate the data about Black people specifically, about the unarmed. Uh, and later you saw the Washington Post do work uh, similar to what we did, and then you saw the Guardian do work similar to what we did. We did it first. Uh, and it was about making sure that in the activist community that we had access to the data ourselves. I don't know if you know, but the, the way that we get the data around police violence is um, is newspapers. Like That is the official source across the country. That has been the official source. 
Uh, and we use that data to plug holes. There's so many people that we know got killed, but we don't know who they are, any demographics about them. And that was that project. And once we finished mapping police violence, or once we built it, then we did Campaign Zero. That was about what are the solutions. Mapping police violence was like, what's the data? And then Campaign Zero was about what are the solutions. Yeah, yeah. and we, in fact, I I covered Campaign Zero um, at, at one in one show at one point in time because the the policies, the direction that was going seemed to be very doable. It seemed doable to me. And I I often hear activists saying, these things need to change, but not saying, these things need to change, and here's how. And that's yeah. I was just going to say, that's the important work that you've been doing here. Um, one of the things that, that is so frustrating to me is we've known for years Broken windows policing doesn't work. We have known for years that the heavy-handed, tough-on-crime approach doesn't work. And we've known for years that failing to invest in poor neighborhoods makes things more expensive over time. I'm really frustrated and wondering when the conservatives in cities like Baltimore and, and folks who live in wealthy neighborhoods in cities like Baltimore are going to get tired of their tax money going to expensive programs that make things worse and ultimately end up getting the city sued so that it costs even more for the city to operate. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that it is about uh, people understanding about investing in prevention and real solutions. I think about the police department, you know, we spend 300, 400 million dollars on the police department and don't actually invest in prevention in a, in a real way. Uh, and we know that we can't police our way out of this work. Um, I think it also is about having a mayor who, who actually understands the policy work well, right? That understands that the vacant home strategy is also a food desert strategy, is also a crime strategy, right? That all of these things are intertwined. And we've not had that in the city in a long time. And I think that actually like it makes some of this work cyclical, that people get a little jaded and they don't think much can change because they have lived through so much not changing and so many promises. So people start to think of the mayor as the person who only fixes the potholes and, and someone who actually can't do much more than that, which isn't true. And so what you're focusing on then is is making sure that when – the mayoral's office is occupied again. It has someone there who's interested in actually solving all of these problems and taking that holistic approach. Um, as we as we look at just your holistic neighborhood approach, one of the things that is important uh, but not talked about a lot is is arts and culture and. Well, you talked about fun, having something for young people to do in the city. Uh, and I think we've seen the numbers uh, about how uh, the more the opportunities there are for people to participate in arts and fun and those sorts of life-sustaining, spirit-sustaining activities, the less crime you see. I know that you have a, a whole uh, platform devoted to that. Would you tell us about your uh arts policies and, and the, the places you'll go there. Yes, yeah, so I'm the only candidate with an arts platform, and it is about making sure that first is a real commitment from the mayor's office on arts. There's no, there's currently no office of the arts in the mayor's office and having one that focuses on equity too. You know, there's a lot of resources for artists in the city, great art institutions. Uh, and what we know to be true is that artists from underrepresented communities are often left out. 
um, of those opportunities and we can just invest differently. I'm also calling for... Uh, you mean people of color aren't showing up in mass at the ballet? <laughs> Correct. Or they're not getting <laughs> access to the funding opportunities. They don't right. know about the funding opportunities, right? And we can actually be more thoughtful about that. And there's such a thriving art community here in the city and that we have to tell that story better and attract people uh, who have gifts and talents around art to, to participate in the community. Uh, we can do that work. So that is the crux of that. I call for a host of specific things. You know, there's a 1% set aside for development projects for a public public art. And I'm saying to double that to 2% that we can uh, we can just be involved in art differently in the city and have a real commitment come from the mayor's office. Um, and there are a lot of policies and, and plans that I have about uh, sort of fun and joy in the city that that has to be a part of the work that we have to develop, not just around the harbor. Uh, but in other parts of the city, I'm calling for a citywide intramural league, you know, we can, it's such low cost, but the impact could be huge about making sure that every kid in the city who wants to participate in an activity over the summer has that. Parents want that. Uh, you know, we we have enough people who could be refs and coaches. Uh, we could do coding. We could do podcasting. We could, you know, we could do so much, but we have to really make a system. And I think that. I I learned something because I'm had my head in the sand all this time apparently. I learned something a couple of shows ago in Cairo during Arab Spring. There was this corridor in Cairo where it suddenly became possible for graffiti artists to paint graffiti. And they started out doing, you know, simple things like if you go down this street there are police. But then they ended up doing these absolutely Incredible. I mean, breathtaking murals, murals that should be in museums, murals that are, I mean, really amazing art. And it occurred to me that why in every city in the nation are we not saying these walls are available and just letting people do that? And some of it's going to look great and some of it's going to be, you know, you know, bizarre tagging, but when beautiful stuff gets put up, guess what? People don't screw it up. And I, yeah. and I just thought that's a matter of perspective. It had never, that had just literally never crossed my mind before. You know, I agree. And, you know, we have a thriving uh, mural community here. There's some a beautiful, um, there's some beautiful murals all over the city. And, and I think that we should just tell the story better. Like people shouldn't have to, right now you have to go on like a mural scavenger hunt to see them. And, uh, you shouldn't have to, right? Like, we should be able to tell you, like, there are murals here. There are these beautiful things in communities that we can highlight. Okay. DeRay, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we wish you luck. Uh, when is the primary day? April 26th. All right. We wish you luck on April 26th. Does early voting start at any other point? April 14th. So from April 14th to April 26th, uh, people can come out and vote. I wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much for spending some time with us here. Perfect. Talk to you later. Excellent. Folks, you have been listening to Hopping Mad. Thanks so much for spending time with us. Uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>